When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. This week on the show, we have the literary legend Anne Patchett, who's here to talk about her new book of essays, These Precious Days. Anne has been on the podcast before, and our conversation picks up where it let off. We start by talking about Anne's remarkable friend, Suki Raphael, who created the painting of Anne's dog, Sparky, that graces the cover of the book. Anne and I talk about another very important dog in her life, Snoopy. We also touch upon taking psilocybin and why writing about happy people seems like a radical thing to do these days. I hope you enjoy this episode. And my goodness, I can see the painting yeah. in the background. There it is. Noah's there painting. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Oh, we'll yeah. have to touch upon that. Maybe I could tell you about my morning. Please. I was finishing the book last night because I like to leave the last essay or so. And actually, I finished the very last essay on the subway this morning. Not good. No, no. So I will say that a mask is a really great tear catcher. (laughs) To talk about friendship and the remarkable friendship that you write about with Suki in your book, having read Precious Days, the essay last night and being so moved, I did what Anne Patchett would do and I woke up at 530 And I went to see my very best friend here who has just had a newborn. And something that Carl said about having Suki in your home reminded me of how to be a better friend. And Carl said, it's an honor, really. I think about all the people who would want her to live with them. It's almost unbelievable that she's here with us. And there was something about that switch of perspective of seeing the privilege in going to someone you love as a guide on how to be a better friend. I think that that's that's very true. It's also interesting the difference between having someone in your home and then being in their home. Because at the end of Suki's life, I went to her house and that whole dynamic gets flipped And I could see even more somehow when I was in her house, what a huge deal it was for her to be in our house. 
for such a long time and how there's just a certain kind of humility that you have to take on when you're in someone else's house. You want to be a good guest. You want to do the right thing. And I had such a sense of that when I was in her house and that the easy part was what we got to do, which was just to welcome her. I mean, I think that that whole thing of it's so much easier to give than it is to receive. It seems that was part of her reluctance to say she would stay a long time. But I'd love to just go backwards a little bit and for you to describe to us how you first met her and how that delicate beginnings of a friendship built up over time. I met Suki. She worked with Tom Hanks. I was interviewing Tom at a theater. I met her for a few minutes and I was very, very struck by her. She was silent. She was standing off to the edge. And yet I kept thinking, who is she? Who is she? So it wasn't just me. A lot of people had that experience. And then a lot of people said, oh, I kept in touch with her too. In the same way, I just, I was just crazy about her. I just loved her. When Tom was recording The Dutch House, the woman who was the director of the audiobook, who worked for HarperCollins, my publisher. But at that point, I had never met Suzanne. And she would email me a couple of times during the day, every day, to tell me how the book was going. But the thing that she kept talking about was this amazing woman. She's incredible. But she hardly spoke. So, you know, there Suzanne is taping Tom Hanks for four days, and she's writing to me about Suki. So Suki and I had a small email exchange that we kept up and we kept up because I kept it up because I just liked her so much. And then over time, I, I found out that she had had pancreatic cancer because she hadn't answered an email for a long time. And then when she came back around and I was always thinking, oh, I don't want to bother her. You know, I, what am I to her? I'm just like some crazy stalker. So the Sookie stalker, as opposed to a Tom Hanks stalker, which I absolutely was not. And she said, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I'm so late. I had a medical procedure, but I'm back at work now and everything's fine. And I wrote her back and I said something like, oh, please tell me you had your eyes done. <laughs> tell me that it was some meaningless cosmetic thing that caused you to be out of work all this time. And she said, no, I, I had pancreatic cancer. And then I was always thinking, well, now I really don't want to impinge on her time. I really don't want to be one more thing on her list of things to do because there was no reason for me to be in her inbox. But I would send her books about color. I own a bookstore and she was a painter. And that was just kind of what I knew that she was obsessed with color. So anytime I saw a really great book about painting or just like a Pantone book about the history of the color wheel, and that's how I communicate with people, I send them books. And so little by little, we exchanged more information. And then I found out that she was looking for a clinical trial. And I happened to tell my husband, who is a doctor, and he said, if she wants to send me her records, I'll see if I can get her into a trial here. And that's really how the story happened. It was so random. It was so absolutely unplanned coincidence after coincidence that led us together. 
I love it because it's an example of how in life, if you are attracted to a person and their beautiful energy, even at any stage in your life, you can have a completely extraordinary friendship. And I think we need to be reminded of that sometimes. We have enough friends to create room for special people. It sounds like something you're very good at. Well, it sounds like something that I'm good at because those are the stories that I write. And then people wind up thinking that I'm some sort of a magic unicorn with just this unbelievable open heart and a sixth sense for who I should reach out to. But in fact, the story is, you think of the countless thousands of people you miss and opportunities you miss, because for whatever reason at that moment, you didn't have the energy to be completely open-hearted. And, you know, we all have friends who say, yes, I'm going to take in Afghan refugees. I'm going to welcome the Haitian refugees from the hurricane into my home, and it will be also an extraordinary experience. And I don't do that. There are endless, endless examples of me not saying, yes, welcome. And then sometimes you do, and it is just astonishing. That's the theme in your work too, about preserving your own energy. And I related to being someone who feels that they only have enough energy for a few things. Can you talk about understanding yourself and your own energy, maybe in contrast to some of those others? Yes. I, I think about this a lot. I think about my sister, Heather, for example. Heather was the smart one. I mean, there's just no other way to put it. She got fabulous grades. She graduated the first in her class. She spoke a couple of languages. She's one of those people who can play an instrument or hang sheetrock or make a chest of drawers. Or I mean, there's nothing she can't figure out. And I always think we came into life, maybe, with the same amount of energy or the same amount of talent. And I put all of mine into one place. I am a hedgehog. And my sister is a fox. And my sister didn't have one thing. She was good at everything. And what happens with that is she spent a lot of her life serving other people. And I have spent my life pretty much serving myself because writing and, and making this one thing is what I do with my energy. So I think that sometimes it's a matter of focus. When I think about Carl, who has so many interests, he's such a fox, he can do so many things well, but his work will always come first. If I was hit by a car today, Carl would go to work tomorrow. He would love me. He would miss me. He would be sad, but he would still get up and go to work no matter what. Whereas my world can be absolutely derailed by a loss or by a joy or by frankly anything. You know, I can get bumped off track and then I have to sort of claw my way back. Suki's energy was it, the way I was seeing her was all and only about art. And in that sense, I related to her so deeply. But there was a way in which she was like somebody going to college who on the trip to school says, I'm going to make myself into the person I want to be. 
So she had always wanted to just paint and she could never do it because she worked 18 hours a day. She was gone all the time. She had a million friends. She had children and a husband and this big life. But when she came here, she was just going to be a painter and really gave the cancer over to Carl and to her oncologist, Johanna, and relied on them to look after that and just painted. And I think she was so happy here because she could be the person she always wanted to be. That's remarkable. And when we come across that part in the essay where you are trying to understand her and her decision-making process of whether to go home or not, but to have a woman say, I like who I am here and I like who I am around you. Yeah. Such a precious moment in time or in a life to share with another person. Yeah. And it made me think of your childhood friendship with Tavia, but also this two years of pandemic time we had. For me, the quietness that came with that was a returning to a childhood self, childhood interests. You know, when you're a kid, left your own devices and you're bored. But then after you've been ignored, you found your way back to whatever it is you love. It seems like you were a child who already knew that place for herself, but that often a friendship can bring you back to that innocent, but also absorbing kind of creative state. Yes. There are a couple of things that I want to say that, and let me see if I can actually hang on to them. When my friend Lucy Greeley died, when we were 39, one of the things that I realized was that I would never again have the time to waste with someone. I would make plenty of new friendships. I have made some spectacular new friendships in my life, but Lucy and I wasted time together. Tavia and I wasted endless amounts of time together, conditioning our hair, putting on face masks, watching television, doing Jane Fonda exercises, going on walks, not doing anything at all. There isn't that time anymore as an adult. And so that kind of friendship where you've just I don't know, made a pan of brownies together and then stayed in bed all day and eaten them and talked about stupid things. That That's just gone. And really the combination of Sookie being stuck here and the pandemic gave me the kind of endless, expansive, boring time with her that felt very much like a childhood friendship. I realized that for such a long time, I've been slowly building up this carapace. I feel like I have an Iron Man suit that allows me to go out into the world and be Anne Patchett. And I just took it off. Like I was dismantling scaffolding that I didn't even know I had anymore. And that returned me to myself. And this sense of, I don't want to be that person anymore. I don't want to be I don't want to be entertaining anymore, Angela. I'm done. <laughs> no, that's why I like to read your book and then realize that 
asking you to give your time, your precious days to come on and talk about the work. Like there's such a contradiction there. But it's fine because I'm home. I'm not in your studio in New York. I am not going to sleep in a Marriott tonight. I am not going to get on a plane tomorrow because I'm home and I'm completely relaxed. I get to have interesting conversations and do my job. And when it's done, I will take the dog out. I will pick my mother up. I will take her to the grocery store. I will buy the things I need to make dinner tonight. And that makes me feel human. Well, this is a connection that I hope no one else will make, but it somehow relates to Snoopy and imagining him (laughs) writing and that note that you mention in the book that Charlie Brown has to write, Snoopy cannot come out and play (laughs) because he's doing something very important. And it's almost as if you're doing your very important thing. And no, you won't, you will not be able to come and play fetch the stick I love that because things are on your terms now and the question is will I be able to hold on to it and that's up to me that's what I keep telling myself so what will it be like for the next book will I go out and do it again I don't think so I don't ever want to put a pair of high heels on again for any reason whatsoever I want to ask you all about your year of not shopping and that relates (laughs) to shoes. But I think before that, because it was such an unexpected joy to connect with one of your biggest influences with Snoopy. So my favorite stuffed animal that my dad still has is a Snoopy that had a one-piece swimsuit. But the thing that fascinated me the most, and somehow it felt a little sexually strange is that it had a hole where his tail would go. (laughs) And I felt every time I took off the swimsuit, it felt like some, I was crossing (laughs) some very private boundary with Snoopy and I quickly put it back on already like a child thinking about shame and private parts. Well, where's the tail? You know, anyway, can you tell us about that connection of not just wanting to connect with being a writer, but of being schooled in rejection. Yes. And and I should really say, I wrote that piece for an anthology put together by a friend of mine, Andrew Blonner, called The Peanuts Papers. And he got the most amazing people, George Saunders and Chris Ware and all these people talking about Peanuts characters. So when he asked me to do it, I said, well, no, I said, I'd only want to do it if I could write about Snoopy and I'm not going to get Snoopy. And he said, you can have Snoopy. And I felt like somebody had said, you know, okay, you can meet God now. Like, really? I get, I get Snoopy. And then I just went headlong in. It's the great thing about writing an essay because of course, when he said an anthology about peanuts, oh, Scott, you know, I couldn't, I'm not cool enough to have Snoopy. Yes, you are. I knew that I love Snoopy, but the essay really gave me the opportunity to unpack it. And in that sense, the essay can be therapy because I'm like, did I really realize all of this? And I got some giant, and I mean giant peanuts books and sat down and started reading the strips. And I thought every single thing I believe 
came from this dog. Everything I know about perseverance more than anything, because I'm, I will be 58 in a few weeks, but when I was coming along as a young writer in my 20s, and I would send off manuscripts, short stories to magazines, and you would put S-A-S-E, which probably people don't even know what that is anymore, but the self-addressed stamped envelope. And you would take the whole thing to the post office and have it weighed. And then if your envelope came back, the second you saw it, you knew it was all over. You knew that you had failed because they don't use that envelope if they accept the story. And where had I seen that? How did I know how that played out? They did not teach me that in graduate school. Snoopy taught me that. And Snoopy taught me about a book getting remaindered and going out of print and getting an agent. All of those concepts I had never heard of until I heard about them through Peanuts. And what's so bizarre is they were all correct. You know, it's it's not that he was just making a joke out of it. Charles Schultz knew what he was talking about in the same way that you know, Snoopy wraps his doghouse because Cristo is is rapping and doing war and peace in a puppet show. It, it was all factually correct. And there were <laughs> there were a series of Snoopy strips that a friend of mine cut out. Snoopy becomes obsessed with an author, and he has this whole fantasy that goes on for days about how this author is going to love him and she is really going to want to read his manuscript. Nobody else's, but his, she'll be so honored and he'll get to sit in her lap and she'll pet his ears. And I was like, mother of God, you know, this is what everybody thinks about me. I get this letter five times a week. May I send you my manuscript? I'm a brain surgeon. May I send you the manuscript that I finished writing? What do you think I do for a living? Do you think I write books or do you think that I just sit by my mailbox hoping you're going to mail me a manuscript? But especially since I have a bookstore and now I am really unloading on you. They come in giant piles every day. Snoopy knew that. He told me that. So, yeah, I've got issues. <laughs> I don't think, do you think Sparky would get jealous if he knew? Oh, Sparky is a much, much bigger star than I am. I mean, Sparky really is the Snoopy in our relationship. We, we are having our 10th anniversary at the bookstore in a couple of weeks, and we just mocked up our New York Times ad, which was a picture of Sparky. My husband will take Sparky to the dog park on the weekend, and people will say, is that Sparky? Is that Sparky from Parnassus Books? Oh my gosh, kids, look, it's Sparky. Like, I'm not even there. Yeah, he's a big deal. I think someone who's as well known as you needs that for their ego. It's sure. a good... It's a reality check. Yeah, exactly. Totally. Well, I want to revisit the less intellectual topic we brought up about shopping. My impulse was... I'm going to do this. I'm not going to shop for a year, but what can I quickly buy before I stop my shopping? <laughs> a lot about not shopping. People think it's about not buying, but it is 
about not shopping. Now, a product of not shopping is not buying, but the whole thing of not scrolling the J. Crew sale when I'm too tired to read and I just will flip through sweaters, look at pretty things, opening up the catalogs. Do I want that? Do I want that? To not constantly being in a state of exploration about what I may or may not want. That is the piece. And you don't buy things, but but buying isn't the deal. Shopping is the deal. And people come up to me all the time in the grocery store and say, you know, did you go back to shopping? And I always say it, it got wrecked. Um, like, yes, I do shop. I do buy things now. But it I really spoiled it for myself. And the idea of going to the mall with my sister on a sale day and just looking and seeing what's out there, that's gone. I mean, if I break the drain rack in the kitchen, I certainly will go on without a thought and buy a new drain rack. But I, I don't just look around anymore. There's so many parts in this essay collection that are a glaring you know, reminder of how to live. And I know that you don't uh, really watch television or don't have social media. And I thought you're giving yourself the gift of time or you're prioritizing your own time and spending it the way you want to. Was there a shift anywhere or a kind of light bulb moment for you that really pushed you towards reclaiming your time? No, no. And that's a really important point because I didn't I didn't ever give it up. I can remember when I was in my 20s, I was living in Montana and I had a boyfriend named Mark and Mark loved a show called 30 something, which at that point was on reruns at night. And so I would go over and watch 30 something with him. And I remember one night I was sobbing. I was watching the show and one of the characters died and I was sobbing. And I thought, that's it. This is insane. I am way too invested in these people. And I don't want to sit in front of a box and cry about people who aren't even real. So there went television. As far as the whole social media thing was concerned, I could just smell that from a mile off. I thought, oh, that's a bad idea. So I never started. It wasn't that I started and stopped. And I used to carry a little flip cell phone. That I don't do anymore. I won't have anything to do with the phone. I can't abide that. I like to talk on the phone. I like my phone, but it's plugged into the wall in my house. I've never texted. I mean, it just, it's so funny because when people say, oh, I want to be like you, I'm going to try to give up my phone and my social media. And I, and I always say, well, then you'd be nothing like me. That's like a heroin addict saying, I'm going to give up heroin for a month and be like you. No, I've never done it. Do you have an answering machine at home? I do have an answering machine. Yes. And I rely on it quite heavily because when the phone rings, I kind of just look at it. As a woman who's 40 and has just met that beautiful person. I read Flight Plan when it was in the New Yorker and I have a great girlfriend. She was also negotiating loving a man who has this quite dangerous pastime. 
to love someone is sometimes to accept the things about them that make them feel alive. We can't squash the things that give people energy because we we risk squashing all of that energy. So I have been thinking about writing that essay for 10 years. For 10 years, I have been taking notes, talking to Carl about it. And the thing I could never figure out was how do I write this essay so that it isn't just, oh, poor Ann Patchett, she has a plain, poor thing. I mean, the entitlement, the first worldness of it, I could never get past and I couldn't figure out how to write it. And finally, I figured out this is not about Carl owning a plane. This is about relationships. And I have long said about Carl, my sort of my marriage mantra, my relationship mantra is you are a tapestry. I do not get to pick out the threads I don't like because then you will fall on the floor. You you can't unravel someone. There was a great Burt Bacharach song that Dionne Warwick sang in the 60s or 70s called Don't Make Me Over, Now That I Can't Make It Without You. You know, don't pick on the things I say, the things I do, love me with all my faults the way that I love you. And that's what it is. It's not, the plane is really just a symbol for you have to accept people for who they are. And if you can't, don't marry them. And yes, I wish that Carl had a hobby that didn't revolve around the possibility of his death, but I don't get to make that choice. And Carl, who really is like the Dalai Lama in that no matter what I say, honey, I'm you know going to go to Utah for three months and write a book. I'm going to go on book tour. I'm going to open a bookstore. I'm going to I'm going to buy my friend a house. No matter what I say, he's like, great. I admire you so much. I am so proud of you. I learned so much from you. You go. But what he's doing is modeling behavior. He's teaching me how he wants to be treated. And I try hard to pay attention. It's such an incredible gift that you have taken the time, 10 years of thinking about this and forged it into an essay because I feel like this is a, a guidebook for a relationship. But I thought I thought people would really make fun of me. It, it's, it's really interesting. I was doing an interview with a woman that I know a little bit and she said to me something so shocking. And she said, you know, you've done something very politically incorrect. You have written a book about being rich. And she said, I'm not just talking about money, but you have plenty of money. You are happy. You have a good marriage. You are in good health. People do not want to hear this. But she was right. You know, there's like, there will be people who will come for you over this because what people write memoirs about is tragedy. And even though there is tragedy in your memoir, it's really, it's about a great life. It's about loving life. And I thought that was so fascinating. I loved that. And I thought probably if I was on social media, I wouldn't have had the bravery to do it. 
well, I feel this book is permission to revel in the beautiful moments of life. The visual arts seem to embrace beauty and color and vibrancy in a way that somehow other art forms aren't given permission to at the moment. I I think that that's very true. But also there's such power in not looking, not taking the critics and the world into account and just saying, you know what? I'm doing a very small thing. I'm making art. I am, I did not come up with the COVID vaccine, right? You know, like, and I'm not making art for the world and I am not the only voice in art. I'm just doing this one thing. But why is it that if we write about serial killers, everybody's like, oh, well, yeah, you're really telling the truth. How many serial killers do you know? I don't know. I think a lot of people are kind of happy. I do too. And I've kind of made a choice not to watch much television because I found it was taking up my life. And then I watched one of these series that everyone was watching. And I was like, this is disgusting people. I mean, am I going to give over eight hours of my precious life to this? And I don't know why I brought that up. Wait, can I say something about that though? So, (laughs) so Reese Witherspoon lives in Nashville and she is a friend of mine. And I thought I'm I'm going to watch Big Little Lies way after the fact, but I had never seen it. And I think I watched two episodes and I said to her, this is like drinking bleach. And what I realized is, okay, I turned the television off at 30 something and I turned it on again for Big Little Lies. But you would have had to have seen The Sopranos and The Wire and Breaking Bad and all of these things that get you from 30-something to Big Little Lies. You cannot go there without those interim shows because it seems insane that these people are cheating and lying and screaming and, and, and flipping their position on each other every five minutes. It was so upsetting to me. And she was very gracious about it. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's a sign of what social media is doing too, because I feel like things have to be extreme to hold our attention. And so I think we're seeing that in shows as well, the extreme ways people treat one another, these housewives shows where everyone's being just terrible to each other. And that's how we got Trump. Mm. That's all of that leads us to the Trump presidency and to politics and the screeching and the hatefulness. I don't know how we can turn it back, but I hope that there are artists in film, television, writers trying to bring us back to stories that aren't just addicted to conflict and darkness. But actually I found myself feeling like I might be your father in some ways, wanting everything to be wholesome. Mm -hmm. And I caught myself because I thought, oh my gosh, I might be that person. That's interesting. There's room for that person. That's what you have to remember. You don't have to be all people. There is room for that. Well, can I ask you about your three fathers and the extraordinary 
photograph that was taken at your sister's wedding, there was a moment where you realized that your three fathers would be at her wedding, uh, the family equivalent of a total solar eclipse. I just, I love that phrase. What led up to that and how did these three men influence you? I think that a lot of people get put out with their parents because their parents disappointed them or didn't give them something that they needed. I had so many parents that I really never got put out with any of them because I would get one thing. They were each like a food group, you know, would get one thing from one person, one thing from another person. My father never gave me any money, but Mike always gave me money. My father would give me an infinite amount of time and attention when we were together. He would always take off work every second we came out to visit. But when Mike's children came to visit, he would work twice as much. So, you know, I just always thought I was really lucky everything's perspective. And I also had several mothers, so I didn't get tired of any of them. I could just sort of have them all on rotation. And their extreme views might have exhausted me, except I could take refuge in one of the other ones. So it it worked out surprisingly well. It just made me think that you get more examples of how to be a woman, man, mother, husband, this is how you can be a mother and work. This is how to be a wife to this type of man. You're like, that's double the the feedback. Right, right. And double the feedback with half the expectation. Because again, you if there's something you're missing, chances are you can get it from someone else, which has got to be a relief. You know, as long as there's not someone who's who's really an actively awful person in the mix. It's not that I recommend going out and getting divorced so as to give your children more parents, but sometimes it works. I'm fortunate enough to be speaking to you and I'm seeing the incredible image that was on the cover of the Dutch house. How did you meet the artist who created this painting for you, Noah? Noah was someone who had a very slight connection with a friend of mine. And when he moved to Nashville, my friend told me, I got in touch with him. He had an art show in the bookstore. That was kind of it. I I know I met him. I loved his work. And then when I started looking for this image, thinking that I would find it archivally, not finding it, and I thought, I, you know, that, that guy, Noah Satterstrom, I bet he could do it. And I contacted him and it worked out so well. But the loveliest part is that Noah and I have become such good friends. And he has three tiny children, fabulous wife, who works outside the home because she provides health insurance. And Noah is home painting and often with the kids because they're very small. And once a month or so, he comes over and we have breakfast and he all but bursts into tears the second he walks in my front door because it is quiet and neat. And we talk about art for an hour and a half and he is so grateful and so overjoyed. So that has been a wonderful byproduct. And I should also say, Suki. Her painting is on the cover of the book and also the back, but she was really ill by the time we were working on the cover. 
And she sat through so many long Zoom meetings with the art department at HarperCollins, getting the type exactly right, getting the colors exactly right. The front of the book is bright red. The back of the book is bright pink. We had so many different color combinations. And again, she went to Pantone. She was like, ah, that's not the right red. I'm going to find the right red. And I, when I look at that book now, and it's so striking, it is so strong. It just leaps out and it feels like such a huge kiss, just such a huge kiss from her that she took that time to make sure it was absolutely up to her standards of color. It's so beautiful. It's it's just a joy. To come full circle that relationship with her, you have both done things for one another. I'm thinking of taking psilocybin together. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I misunderstood that sentence. I thought you were saying, I'm thinking of taking psilocybin. And I was like, but wait, wait. <laughs> but it's so interesting that you had such different experiences, but a profound one on both accounts. Any reflections since that time, this link of holding death for Suki so she could have a very different colorful experience of life. I've had so many letters from people who read it in Harper's Magazine saying, I know you had a bad experience, but I'd like to come to Nashville and bring you mushrooms and be your guide. I'm like, oh no, 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 no. The person who I got the mushrooms from, who is a good friend of mine, said to me in advance, I know people who have had bad experiences doing this, but I've never known anyone who regretted doing it. And I have to say that is right. In the immediate aftermath, I regretted it because I was just so damn sick and I couldn't understand how that was a good idea to poison yourself. In retrospect, if what I say is true and I held her death, I had that experience I was there for her. I helped her. It was a wonderful experience for her. She would not have had unless I had done it. It was worth it. Would I do it all again? Yes, I would, because it was so, it was so important. And also I can remember so vividly lying there and looking at her with her eyes closed under this big furry blanket and thinking she's dead, she's dead, she's dead. Thinking this is what she will look like this. I am looking at her death and then taking it into myself. But probably there was some sense in which that prepared me because it forced me to think about it in a way that I didn't want to think about it. Just a few days before she left, she's leaving. She will leave. We will all leave. We will. There's the point. We will. We will all leave. And the question is whether or not we can see the enormous beauty that is here before we do. That's it. That's it. It's here. And I know that people have 
unbelievably hard lives and huge challenges. And still, I think there is beauty. Well, I think you may have answered my very last question, which is, Anne Patchett, what lights you up? <laughs> okay, this is going to be a really, this is going to be a real twist of an answer. There was a book that was published in October called Little Pieces of Hope by Todd Doty. And he's a publicist. And he started an Instagram, which I didn't know anything about, but he wrote this book of lists, list after list after list with no explanation of things that bring him joy. And I thought, well, this is silly. And I started reading it because I know him. And it lit up parts of my brain. I, this book should be in every home because it just tapped on this particular photograph of Jackie Onassis crossing the street in 1972. And you look it up, this Betty Davis movie, this, this Grecky symphony, this children's book, this novel, this walk in the park, this kind of apple, completely random. But my brain was firing with joy. And Sometimes it's just remembering that there are all these things out there. Yesterday, I picked up a book of David Hockney's exhibition in London of paintings he had made on his iPad. It's called Spring in Normandy. I, I could barely sleep. I was so happy after looking at it to see the joy and the beauty of being alive to see it through David Hockney's eyes, to imagine that David Hockney at 84 had taught himself to do this on an iPad. There's a lot to be happy about. Yeah. My goodness. And thank you so, so much. What a gift of your time and attention, truly. What a, a gift of yours. And thank you. I'm so glad that this has brought us together again. Thank you. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgerwood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Radofsky. This week's episode was edited by Trevor Wallace. Until next time, bye everyone. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.